Come on, man, you know why I'm here. I can't say I do, no. Yeah, you do. You're the guy. Yeah, you do. You're the guy. Look, I am 96% sure that you are the guy, so why don't you just, like, admit it? This is the Extra Hot Great Podcast, episode 272 for the week of October 12th, 2019. I am Secure Fish Plate David T. Cole, and I'm here with Cocaine Steward Sarah D. Bunting. Pew, 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 keeping it level. Evil welder Tara Ariano. Me? No, I'm a cop. And dead eyed goober Alan Seppenwall. Uh, let me just grab my belt, okay? <laughs> Welcome to Extra Hot Great. We are here this week to talk about Netflix's Breaking Bad sequel movie, El Camino, and joining us, who else? Our dear friend, Alan Seppenwall. Hello, Alan. Alan. Hey, guys. Yay! (laughs) (laughs) El Camino, and we are going to talk about, obviously, the whole thing, because we watched all two hours of it, so if you haven't watched it, there will be spoilers. Um... The plot summary is what happened to Jesse, basically, mostly after he left um, the neo-Nazis compound in Todd's El Camino, screaming with relief slash pain slash trauma, and some flashbacks uh, to what happened during his enslavement, basically. And Alan has a lot of excellent pieces about this up at Rolling Stone, where he is, of course, chief TV critic. Um, so Alan, let's start here. You point out in your initial review of the film that this is a process story. Why don't you talk, talk about that a little bit? All right. So I remember when they announced that this thing was going to happen, people were like, Ooh, you know, are we going to follow him? You know, years from now, is it going to be like the Cinnabon gene stories on better call Saul or whatever? Mm -hmm. And no, it's like two days, the next two days after breaking bad ends. And it's just step by goddamn step through the process of Jesse Pinkman trying to get the hell out of Albuquerque alive. So it's, you know, he's got to hide his car. Where does he go? He goes to Skinny Pete. He's got to find money. Who does he know who has money? He figures Todd had money hidden somewhere in his apartment. He's got to find a way out of town. He calls Ed the Disappearer. Rest in peace, Robert Forster, in a really sort of sad bit of timing there. Uh, So it's just sort of like one agonizing step at a time, which is what Breaking Bad kind of always did, going back to, you know, the first few episodes of the show. Sarah, you love a process story. We all know this. What did you think? Um, My first and last notes were about this, like, fugitive Mm how-to narrative and how satisfying it is, and also um, just all these allusions to other satisfying fugitive how-to process stories. Um, and also paranoia stories like the conversation, um, and then nods back to references within Breaking Bad. Uh, I really found it just so enjoyable. Um, a lot of the reviews that I read besides Alan's sort of came to the same conclusion, which was, was this absolutely necessary narratively? No. Um, except then you see it and you can't imagine it not existing because it's nice to be back in this world with this storyteller like some of these people are repellent um and like seeing walter white again is you know it's a mixed it's a mixed 
pleasure, I guess, because it's a well-acted part, but he's a monster. But I mean, I just really enjoyed it. It was really a fun two hours. I was not bored. And uh, yeah, I I thought it was great. Dave, you were more meh about it. I was mad about it. Let me let me no, let I me said meh. let me make a comparison and it'll, it'll explain exactly where I am with El Camino. El Camino is the solo a Star Wars story of Breaking Bad. <laughs> it's a character okay. that I like and I'm totally not unhappy to see again. There's some fun set pieces. It's got good cinematography. In both of them, there's a high noon standoff for some reason somehow in both of them. I didn't learn anything about the main character that I didn't already know or assume before. And after it ended, I thought I liked it. But if I'm being honest with myself, it was like unnecessary as a part of the puzzle of the story. So when people say that they enjoyed El Camino, I am in that camp. I don't think it was like great or important with a capital I. I, I really get the sense that everybody involved with making Breaking Bad just really missed making Breaking Bad and <laughs> yeah. wanted to get the gang back together in so far that you can get the gang back together when most of them are dead. Mm. One thing I will compliment it on a lot is I felt it did really well balancing this sort of follow-up idea and not making it incredibly fan servicey. Like I thought there was nice yeah. little touches I feel like it wasn't too like Easter eggy and sort of like over the top winky kind of stuff, which like solo a Star Wars story was like there's 10,000 of them in there. It got really annoying. So I I did like that part of it. So happy to watch it. Don't feel like I need to watch it again. Wasn't necessary. No. Yo, am I happy they made it? Yes. So, you know, I'm I'm right there in the middle. Uh, I'm glad you called out the fan service thing because when I was making my notes this morning, the one that that jumped out to me was the part where um, where Jesse goes to Ed, the disappearer, and they counts out all his money, and he's like, "That's great, this pays for your last one. Now we have to pay for this one." And it's like, oh, like it would be so cheap and easy for them to be like, "He's just going to be a good dude and like give him a discount or, so, yeah. or a kill fee or something." But it's like that's not what this story is about. And then that he won't let, like, it's $1,800 and he just won't let it go. Yeah. And then the bookend of that is that the guy asks Jesse, why don't you just ask for an even two grand? And he's like, well, yeah, but <laughs> the point is he needs 1800 and that's right. that's what he's going to ask for. So, yeah. The other thing I really enjoyed about El Camino, I thought, was how they made such a minor villain seem so incredibly villainous. And that is like the welder guy. Neil. That character, like I started off like, oh, okay, here's this bumbling guy pretending to be a cop. And then like, he he was never smart. He was never a mastermind. But the menace behind everything and, and sort of like the soullessness of all his actions, like really amped up like how scared I was for Jesse. I really thought that they did a lot with a little with that character. Yeah, Alan, you wrote about him too. Yeah, and that's sort of uh, impressive because he's basically the non-union Mexican equivalent of the Nazis because they wiped out all the Nazis in the series finale. And so they've got to come up with somebody else. And Neil winds up making a pretty good impression in not a lot of time. That's an actor, Scott MacArthur, who I mainly know from comedies like The Mick and The Righteous Gemstones. And he was very creepy here. And he worked, you know, as the stand-in for what they needed. 
That was good. But to me, what I think makes the movie, I, I understand when people say it's not necessary, and it probably isn't. And even Vince Gilligan said that to me in an interview that, that we ran uh, on Tuesday on the, on the website at Rolling Stone. He said, like, this movie doesn't really need to exist, but we wanted to make it anyway. So he agrees with everybody. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I think the one thing that does make it kind of necessary is the flashbacks to Jesse and Todd yes. together. Because, yes. like, Jesse's ordeal with the Nazis is, like, the worst thing that ever happens to anybody on Breaking Bad. But it only takes a part of one episode, essentially. And most of that episode is focused on what's happening with Walt and some of the others. So you really don't feel the impact of the fact that he was, like, a meth slave for months and months and months and, like, couldn't go because he was afraid they were going to kill Brock. And so spending more time with that and also Jesse Plemons kicking ass as Todd, uh, so much so that I didn't care that he looks nothing like he did when the show ended. Yeah. Um, it's, yeah. Like, those scenes were really effective and how yeah. just broken Aaron Paul seemed, especially the bit in the desert when he gets the gun and you know he can't use it because you know Todd's going to be alive at the end of the show. Um yeah. But just seeing, like, Todd talk him into surrendering was so heartbreaking and really drove home a lot of stuff that the show itself had to skip over right at the very end. The the moment between them that really sort of hit me was when they first get to Todd's apartment and they're talking about the decor and they're talking about the paint choices and Jesse's sort of like just mealy-mouthing around trying to compliment him just to keep him in his good graces. And he just says, like, so are we here to paint the apartment? Well, maybe if we have time later. Like, it's such a, like, uh... <laughs> A kick in the pants, and it says so much about Aaron Paul, uh, about Jesse's worth in that moment to everybody. It really sort of hit me. It's yeah. brutal. The whole thing is brutal. And then, like, he's they're driving out of the desert with a corpse in the back of the truck, and he's singing along the easy listening, and the tr- and the truck goes by next to him, and he pumps his arm out the window to try to get the guy to honk the horn, and nothing happens. Yeah. <laughs> Because he's like a sociopath, but he doesn't revel in it the way like these monsters usually do in crime stories. Like he just kills people because it seems like the only solution to any problem. He doesn't enjoy it. He feels bad that he killed the maid, but he still had to do it. Yeah, those scenes are like some of the creepiest shit I think I've ever seen. And it felt like every detail of the story was so considered, like not just that she's dead with his belt around her neck, but then he takes it off her and puts it back on before they roll her up in the rug. Like, I mean, if everything about that whole sequence, like the starting with the banality of like chatting with Jesse or trying to about the weather, like Jesse doesn't know anything about the weather. He lives in a hole because of you. Like <laughs> all that was to me, that was more than anything else. What made, what made the story like worth telling from this angle? Cause, Oh, horrible well in the weather in abq like what is going to be different it's right. like oh it it might rain slightly more than it might rain the other days which is not <laughs> like okay mm. on the flip side you have his uh time with skinny at the start and yeah. he is just so very helpful and happy to see jesse and willing to do whatever it takes to get his friend uh back on his feet and out of danger it was really affecting like i really felt like i wanted to give skinny a hug and it would stink but i would still give him a hug <laughs> <laughs> wouldn't stink he's got the irish spring it no, might have hairs right. on it that just means he used it <laughs> <laughs> well i had a question for alan actually did you because you have literally written the book on this show was there anything in this um 
more cinematic experience that didn't work for you? And is that because you have marinated in this show or it was just nice to reunite with them again? What was your experience having written a book and spent much more granular time with this uh, world? No, I, I think it overall works really well as a movie. I wound up seeing it about a week in advance because I had to set up these interviews um, at a screening room in Manhattan, which was a nice way to see it on a big screen with big sound. So when mm-hmm. Jesse blows up the welding shop, it's a very satisfying boom to it that you know my TV at home probably would not have been able to recreate. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I thought it worked very well. I don't... I kind of wish that there were more... that there was somebody left other than Neil for him to go after, but there wasn't. Um, and so because of that, it winds up, fe- the climax feels less affecting than it otherwise could, even though it's kind of fun to see him do the gag with the with the gun in his pocket. But beyond that, I thought it, it worked really well. I was engaged throughout. I was very happy. They saved most of sort of the, the fan service things for the very end with the cameo by Walt and then the briefer cameo by Jane. Um, so it didn't really feel like, oh, we're just doing this to do it. It was entertaining in that specific way that I'd always enjoyed about Breaking Bad even when the characters were kind of monstrous. Yeah, agree. I didn't really notice until I read your piece how long it actually takes for Jesse to shoot anyone, including when he is actually armed. That's an interesting choice, story-wise. Yeah, no, he's like, he's in a couple different situations where he could, and he's like, no, I'm... First, he surrenders the gun to Todd, he surrenders the gun to Neil and Casey in the apartment, yeah. and then eventually he uses his dad's you know spare gun from the safe and he shoots him through the pocket. Um, because he did kill a couple of people on the show, so it's not like he doesn't know how to shoot at all. But right. I like the fact that immediately afterwards, him and Casey are just sort of throwing wild shots at each other yeah. in, in, in the office because they don't know, really know what they're doing. The apartment scene, when he's searching through it, uh, you know, a very Breaking Bad compression of time. I really love that scene a lot. Um, has anybody, I know I made Tara watch it, but has anybody else in the panel ever seen a movie called Miami Blues with Alec Baldwin? Yes, years yes. ago, though. It really reminded, it had a similar vibe to it, sort of like this desperate, bumbling search for, you know, money or whatever. In that movie, he's sort of a, um, you know, a con artist. If you enjoyed El Camino and you haven't watched it, I I would recommend checking that movie out. I think it's got a similar, a similar vibe and uh, also not great things happen to people in that movie as well. Yeah, that scene's also really evocative of some of the stuff they do with, with Mike Ehrmantraut on Better Call Saul, where there's just yeah. long stretches of episodes where there's no dialogue and he's taking apart a car. You know, he's yeah. like going yes. through a warehouse. He's doing all these things. That's Jesse learned well from Mike, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Their scene at the top, I thought, was was a great way to set the scene. Yes. Because I felt less that way about the Walt scene. That one I was the most extraneous to me, I, fe- I felt. Mm, yeah went on a little longer than it it could have i thought but i mean overall you know like i do i have a couple of nitpicks sure but that's it you know that's what they are so do you think uh jesse pinkman albuquerque resident is gonna have a hard time in alaska (laughs) (laughs) well i know one cold baby who uh when the temperature dropped down to a little bit chilly last week had a hard time so maybe Um, but speaking of the landscape, um, which the show has always been a huge fan of the New Mexico setting, and so is Dave, loves the Southwest. Um, Alan mentions as one of his pieces that the spot where Jesse and Todd bury Sonya the cleaner is especially alien, which I thought, too, when we were watching it. And it really underlines the hopelessness of Jesse's situation. Like, 
he's so broken at this point that he might look around and wonder if he's actually even still on Earth. I thought that choice was really strong. Yeah, it looks nothing like any of the places they've cooked. And that show's mm-hmm. done a lot of scenes in the desert. So for them to be able to find something new after this many years of both Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul is impressive. And and you make a good point about like the theme of it and how just utterly lost Jesse is there. So let's say this this becomes a huge hit and Vince Gilligan decides he's going to do this for everyone else. Who's the other side character from Breaking Bad that you would most want to see a movie about who is still alive? Alan. Oh, man. I mean, I kind of wish, and it's obviously impossible now, but I always wish from the moment Robert Forster turned up on the show that you would have some excuse for Ed and Mike to have an adventure together. I'm not even yeah. sure how that's possible because I think Mike doesn't know Ed exists. That's the only way that he can get Saul and Walt out of, out of the town. So, right. uh, I don't know at this point, I guess like young Gus Fring, because as much as I love better call Saul, the one thing I don't think they're doing very well by is Gus on that show. So mm-hmm. maybe some of his adventures in South America, but even that, uh, I don't know. Um, from breaking bad. No, I just want more Kim Wexler. <laughs> <laughs> Great answer, Dave. <laughs> we don't want Walt jr. Uh, no. you know, we don't need to, I don't think Skyler's got much going on. That's going to be compelling in a breaking bad sort of mold. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I'm, I think I'm with Alan. I think, uh, young Gus Fring would probably be the best match for what they've done so far, unless they just want to like, you know, do something in the, do a, like an aliens to alien where they just sort of flip the genre, you know, go from horror to action. They go from, you know, uh, drama to like straight comedy or something like that, which I don't right. want to see. So let's say Gus Fring as well. Right. Sarah. 33 short films about Badger. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Dara. I mean, obviously, young Gus Ring. I, I assumed that was that everyone would guess that. Alan took mine. Sorry. It is time for Around the Dial, talking about something we're watching on TV these days. Let's start with Tara. Well, it was CW premiere week, so I have a couple of CW premieres. First, briefly, Dynasty. I feel like whenever I talk about this show, people think that I'm making stuff up, which I couldn't. It's just crazy all the time. Uh, the season two finale ended with like 50 different catastrophes, but the the best was the... We find out that when Fallon was a teenager, she had this friend named Trixie Tate. They got in a fight at the manor, and she pushed her, and Trixie fell off the banister and like landed on the marble floor and like had massive blunt force head trauma and everyone assumes she died and Anders and and um Blake like threw her in this man-made lake on the property and so that came out and then while the lake was getting dragged for you know for that reason the tr- crew that was doing it was like no we found another body like that wasn't enough <laughs> there's a whole other dead person in the lake too but anyway now we're in the show's third season. The show is also on its third crystal. Um, the second crystal, it turned out the first crystal had just like stolen or borrowed her identity. But now this is still the, the second crystal just played by a new actress. You know what? Change her every season. Don't care. That's fine. Um, Adam, the long lost thought dead brother schemer, um, is still a bad addition. The fact that he's actually a medical doctor makes so many of his schemes feel like cheats because he can get in places and get access to stuff that your average, you know, regular non-doctor soap antagonist can't. But Michael Michelle, terrible on ER, playing Dominic Devereaux here, looks 
fucking incredible. Mm-hmm. The fashion is still the one of the best reasons to watch the show. There's a scene where Fallon intercepts Trixie's mother coming out of church on Sunday, and Fallon is fully in a green leather trench coat with snake earrings. <laughs> like, wow. Okay, great. Um, got it. <laughs> got it. Love it. Um, I love a show and you can tell the ethos is we don't know how long they're going to let us do this. So let's just go balls out all the time. There's another one of these coming soon from Alan. Uh, but I also watched Riverdale. Um, uh, stay out of Riverdale. <laughs> Thank you, Dave. Um, Dave was crossing through the room when I had it on and he was like, have you been watching this all this time? Like, no, we watched it for the premiere for the podcast. And obviously I didn't pick back up since then, except I did now because this was the Luke Perry episode. Of course, Luke Perry played Fred Andrews, Archie's father. And for the first half, most of my notes are complaints. And Sarah, you watched this too, so chime in. Um, the contrived beefcakery, like Archie has his shirt off before the opening credits. <laughs> like, okay, fine. His hair is so fake. Like, yeah, if I you saw that on Twitter. If you can't find a redhead, fine. But like, find a blonde and dye their hair. Don't get this dark haired goon. Also, he's Australian and his accent is like not great. Um, a parsley garnish on pancakes? No. People are in high school and like boyfriends and girlfriends are just sleeping in each other's beds. Veronica is in a fucking cloak on the 4th of July. With black nail polish. Of sure. course. Of morning. Very dark, Whatever. dark lips too. But then Shannon Doherty show up, shows up and we find out the way they've written Fred out of the show is. He was out of town. Um, he was on his way back, stopped to help a woman with her car, car that had stalled and another vehicle killed him in a hit and run. And when the kids go to this other town to bring back the body and get Fred's truck, Shannon Doherty's there. She was the driver that he helped and she came to leave flowers at the accident site and they all pray together. And it's like, ooh, <laughs> these tears are real from everybody. Mm, yeah. Then there's this dumb vigilante plot where Archie hears who the driver was that has like turned himself in. And I get that no other 90210 alum would want to play the person that's taking the rap for killing the Luke Perry character, but I would have loved get another John reason. Sears, shit. Come on. That's true. He is still around. Yeah. Uh, but I have in my notes, I would have loved another reason to hate Brian Austin Green. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Although. Would we have bought him as someone who would be noble on behalf of his son? Maybe not. No. Um, because that's what happens. This guy uh, turns himself in because it was his dumb wiener kid who was joyriding without a license that actually did it. But then, remember how I said it was the 4th of July? Uh, at the top of the episode, we find out the town is having its first parade in years because of the death of Jason Blossom, which happened around that time in the series premiere years ago. Um, and out of respect, they didn't do it. And plus, the Blossom family underwrote the fireworks and Sherry... Cheryl vows not to allow the parade to go forward, but then when Archie and the gang come down Main Street with Fred's body, both sides of the street are full of townspeople holding up signs to celebrate and mourn Fred because everyone loved me and loved him and they got me. I totally cried. It was quite lovely, I thought. Yeah. I mean, look, a slow-mo police escort, like, that's gonna get me. My notes literally say, fine, police escort, fine. <laughs> Um, and then there's like a droplet where I cried on my notes. Like I, I just, I, I mean, I thought they did a really good job for what this show is. Yeah. Um, they tried to still be the show and I, I would love to hear from listeners who have kept up with the show because I don't know if he always looks this much like 
Luke Perry, but the way they were shooting the actor who plays Archie, KJ Appa, Appa, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, you really saw a resemblance that I don't think I necessarily noticed before. Yeah, I only it's in the brows. Like three episodes, but it really, I kind of wanted him to shave a little scar into his yeah. brow, like in tribute. I thought that would have <laughs> been cute. Um, yeah. And the way that he's he was blocked, also, like I, th- I thought it was really. Uh, I thought it was really well done. And also this like little, um, this little mitzvah, like for the culture for yeah. Riverdale to do this and to also make this place for Shannon Doherty to, to have this moment with Luke Perry, like that mm-hmm. definitely was not acting and it was hard to watch, but I don't know. I like from Riverdale, you don't expect that it's going to be actually good and affecting, but it was, really it was and it was also itself um i'm not gonna keep watching or anything but well done riverdale good job a minus yeah they say things like they call him our knight in in uh flannel armor one of the girls i forget which one says like just very simple line your dad was such a gentleman archie and it's like oh that's such a lovely thing to say (laughs) like or pop from the chocolate shop like in archie's eulogy which is honestly kind of a come down from the parade that could have been the end and i would have been fine with it but um, he says that Fred was a good tipper and Pop's like, you damn right or something. It's like, it's another like lovely detail to say about someone because I bet that was true of him too. Yeah. Yeah. I bet most of this stuff was actually just about Luke Perry. So yeah, yeah. I mean, tough, tough needle to thread and they did it. it. They did. Yeah. It's always different when you're seeing something like that. Like you said, when Shannon Doherty's crying, like that's not really acting. And it was the same like for all the kids too. Like, for all of them, this was, you know, their first job, more or less, not Cole Sprouse, but the rest of them, like, had not really done much before this. And so, you know, I can see how he would have been a fatherly figure to them. And so watching them work through it, it was hard. Like, the flip side of that is I just wrote up the season finale of the 90210 original series, which, uh, for the book, which is not a bit, we really are writing it. <laughs> I feel like we have to say that every time because people <laughs> I aren't know, sure. I feel like we have to keep saying that. Like, no, it's not a joke. Yeah. Um, but in that one, like it's all of those scenes, you can tell it's like, and this is the last time for these two actors to be together. And like, again, the same thing, like those, the, the core cast played those characters for 10 years. <laughs> like the emotions that would be happening then, you know, obviously it's different. Like it's, you know, the end of an era in a non death way, but like seeing this, th- this kind of mirroring that in some respects, it was, as we said, very effective. So good job, Riverdale. But uh, I will not continue watching because mm, I can't yeah, handle sorry. <laughs> T- Take the W. It's all you're getting. All right. It's time for Alan. What do you got? Uh, well, earlier this week on Monday night, AMC aired the second season finale of Lodge 49, which yeah. is a show that I have just come to love so, so much. And I really hope it gets to stick around. Um, it's... I know you guys have talked about it before on the podcast, but it's amazing how it's a show where almost nothing happens. <laughs> and it's th- this year, more things happen in the, the next to last episode in this season. A lot of crazy shit happened, but a lot of the time it's just this great hangout vibe with these characters. That's in a show that's very candid about how fucked up the world is and how just everything is broken and nothing is going right for anybody. And yet it, it's just sort of like this warm, fuzzy feeling when you watch it. And I'm not quite sure how they pull it off. And this season they had 
a lot of Paul Giamatti, who's an executive producer, playing one of the character's famous authors, and he's just nuts and keeps, like, diving through plate glass windows. (laughs) And last week, there was a scene where he and Liz, played by the delightful Sonya Cassidy, have a dumpling-eating contest in slow motion, and it's amazing. (laughs) And that's not even the weirdest thing that happens in that episode. Uh, And I just, I really, really have become super fond of Lodge 49, and I, you know, I have no idea how anything makes money in this business anymore, but I hope that there is a way in which AMC continues to make money on this so they can keep it on the air. Yeah, yeah I agree. Paul, uh, Paul F. Tompkins um, played an auctioneer in that second last episode, and he did a thread on Twitter when the finale or the, the penultimate episode of the season was airing and was just talking about like, how lovely everyone was to him, how, what a friendly set it was. Like people, you know, would stay in the scene when he was, you know, shooting what was going to end up being a montage, even though like they had no reason to interact just so he had something to play off. And like, I've followed him since I've been on Twitter. He's guest starred on a bunch of different shows and I've never seen him say anything or be that effusive about any other show. And I loved it because I love to think that they really are that sweet and lovely. I agree. It's a, it's a strangely hopeful show. Yeah. It's one of my favorite shows of the past few years for sure. It is so different. In, the vibe is so different on that show from from other TV. Uh, and I guess for my plug, um, you know, Sarah alluded to, to it before. I've written a book about Breaking Bad, Breaking Bad 101, The Complete Critical Companion that has essays on every episode of the show. Not so complete now, is it, Mr. Man? Yeah, yeah I, guess, I guess I may have to do another edition at some point. I, I don't know. Get this, out that Sharpie. This is a problem. Like, I remember when Revolution was televised, another book of mine that's still on sale. The the third edition came out. I put wow. something in the revised intro where I, where I said, well, I'm never going to do another edition unless either the Deadwood movie gets made or oh. David Chase tells me what happened in the final scene of The Sopranos. Oh, no. And guess what? Both things fucking happened. So, um, so you could buy Breaking Bad 101, you could buy The Soprano Sessions, which I've heard is really good, um, TV the Book, or Revolution was Televised. All of those are still on sale wherever fine books are sold. Sarah D. Bunting. Uh, hell of a copy editing job on Revolution was Televised, if I don't say so myself. Hey. Thanks, Sarah. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so Grandpa Buncey is back with another um, obscure channels, obscure programming. This is called Private Lives of the Windsors, and it is on the Smithsonian Channel. Yes, that exists. <laughs> yes, I've talked about it before because that's my brand. Um, this is like typically of Smithsonian Channel fair if this were airing on um history or reels i would probably give it a miss because there's a um just sort of empty surfacey quality that the smithsonian channel is always like look we have this actual shit in our actual archives and we're gonna make a show about it um so when our esteemed colleague jeff drake is talking about um tv being like a book that reads itself to you <laughs> this is exactly the kind of thing that he's talking about and this is i would say very very good bill paying tv like you do not have to be paying rigid attention every second but i have done a lot of reading about edward the eighth and wallace windsor and all of that stuff and there were still some details in this that I didn't know about um, these. Uh, a lot of the first episode is based on Princess Mary's letters. She was, I believe, Queen Elizabeth's aunt, um, and uh, Edward the Eighth and uh, King Speech guy's brother or sister. She's the one who's in the Downton movie that uh, Tom saves her marriage, right? Correct. Okay. 
Um, and it's, so it's all a, it's all a, like Moebius of royal love. Um, and the way that Smithsonian Channel presents this stuff, they're pretty smart about not just like fact dumping on you and they get a ton, they just have amazing access. They have these letters as the sort of core materials and um, they have various British archivists and historians, but they also have these amazing visuals and sort of footage that you haven't seen before. Smithsonian Channel generally, uh, I recommend. And uh, this series, if you're into royal stuff and you want to like get into it more in the lead up to the crown coming back, I recommend it. Um, once again, that's called Private Lives of the Windsors. It's on Smithsonian Channel on Mondays. And uh, that's it for my plug. Buy Alan's book. Support a copy <laughs> editor today. Um, just kidding. Actually, the Quaid in Full podcast continues. Woo. Season one is about the 70s, and I am in that um, bleak period pre-breaking away um, where he's just in a whole bunch of like, um, I don't even know what to call them, like sex farces that prefigure the Porkies and Revenge of the Nerds movies, <laughs> except they're terrible. And they're all set in the 50s for some reason. Why? Um, but I'm hanging in there. Only a couple more to go. And then we get to the first true classic and one of the quadiest quade projects ever in breaking away so that's the quade in full podcast and you can follow it on twitter at quade in full pod i have three short things one uh almost literally is we started to watch get shorty on epics because we're having such good luck with epics series lately tara's like well let's go back and uh finally check out get shorty so far so good we're a few episodes yeah. in i'm enjoying it a lot the reason why I wanted to mention at this point, like we'll check back in when we get further into the series um, for like some critical thoughts. But in the first episode, when we're introduced to um, the casino, uh, the casino has this cactus swinging door in the front of their restaurant. And I've never wanted something from TV so bad as I wanted this door. <laughs> like each half of the door has half the cactus and it's like one of those classic Roadrunner coyote, you know, with the two arms that come out of it, slightly different heights, cactuses. It's an amazing piece of carpentry. I want it. Um, if anybody knows how to get it, if the prop department wants to throw it out, contact me. Um, <laughs> number two is, I don't know how this has happened, but I thought we were done with the... Like a few years ago, suddenly everything was breathy acoustic cover songs in ads and uh, CW type of shows and stuff like that. And I thought it disappeared, but I'm like lately they're all back in force and I hate it so much. I just really hate it. And I just wanted to shout that out into the heavens in the hope that somehow this action will stop it from happening. They're all the same and they're all bad and figure out a different way not to pay the original artist their full fee. If you have to, let's stop doing these. I am not a crackpot. <laughs> Item number three is following up on the show press um, we've watched the first season finale. Um, I do like the show, but the last episode did sort of fall short of the promise of of the flash forward of the first episode. As Tara said, it was a bit of a plop of an end. Um, <laughs> so look forward to that in four weeks, PBS viewers. <laughs> <laughs> um, it is still worth watching. I enjoyed the ride, but I think they yeah. built it up too much for what they delivered at the end of season one. That's all.
So yeah, there's some good, good twists in the last couple of episodes, but yeah, just kind of, it, it was clear, like there was no, you know, we have to keep people hooked for season two because they're not going to be in season two. So that, that can be a double edged sword, let's say right. the, uh, the, the American model of television making. Um, and I guess for my plug, I'll just mention that we are on Patreon and for as little as $1 a month, you can support us. And if you do, you can get an ad free version of this podcast. Plus you can get our extra, extra hot great podcast one a week so far. And uh, we've been doing a lot of different stuff there. Um, this week, what do we got this week, Sarah? Uh, this week we are wondering what would happen if, uh, Karina Longworth's amazing podcast, You Must Remember This, which I believe is back soon, um, yes. was You Must Remember This also, uh, about the first half century of television instead of film. So look forward to that. Um, you can find that at extrahotgreat.com, hit the Patreon link or directly at patreon.com slash extrahotgreat. And we thank everybody for their support. AMC Network's Sundance Now is a premium streaming video service offering a rich selection of prestige dramas, heart-stopping thrillers, and gripping true crime series from around the world. Sundance Now believes that life is more enriching when experienced through perspectives that differ from our own. Why is Sundance Now so awesome? Sundance Now's catalog includes award-winning original content, international exclusives, and hard-to-find properties at a fair price. You get premium content and no commercials for as low as four ninety nine a month with an annual membership. And you can enjoy it anywhere. Sundance Now works on all your favorite devices. Download the app or watch online on Apple and Android devices, Amazon Fire TV, Google Chromecast, Roku, and more. My favorite aspect of Sundance Now is their documentary library. Pop culture investigations like The Cult of J.T. Leroy, The Pussy Riot Doc, and that must-see for Project Runway fans, Bill Cunningham, New York. But the catalog is impressively deep on the true crime front, too. There are lots of films I've covered for my true crime newsletter, but just as many I haven't had a chance to watch yet, and I had to force myself not to start Valentine Road instead of recording this ad, so... Let's get to that promo code so that I can get back to the film, and you can join me free for 30 days. Start streaming your next obsession. To try Sundance Now free for 30 days, go to SundanceNow.com and use promo code EHG. That's S-U-N-D-A-N-C-E-N-O-W.com and use promo code EHG for 30 days of free streaming. Thanks, Sundance Now. Hey, it's time for the canon. Submitting this week is one Alan Seppenwald. Take it away, Alan. Okay, so you mean cynical bastards all made fun of my last canon submission from Quantum Leap. So I've decided it was time to make you cry with a little help from my favorite show of the 2010s, HBO's The Leftovers. For those who don't know, the series was adapted by Damon Lindelof and Tom Parada from Parada's book about a kind of askew rapture called The Sudden Departure, where 2% of the world's population instantly vanishes at random, leaving the other 98% to try to make sense of what happened, why, and whether the world just ended while they weren't paying attention. No show of the last 10 years has made me cry more, but I'm not sure any show of that period has made me laugh as hard as The Leftovers could make me. And once the show got past that brutal first year that was telling the story of the book, few series in the history of television can match it for sheer craziness. And it's a craziness that was always in service to the questions the series asked about grief, faith, mental illness, and more. 
I knew the canon had already inducted an episode about the show's best character, Nora Durst, played by the great Carrie Coon. So I decided to go with what's arguably the show's signature episode, even though it doesn't feature Nora at all, Season 2's International Assassin. Much of the first season involved the Guilty Remnant, a religious cult whose members all wore white, chain-smoked, and didn't speak to remind the world of the, the rest of the world about the sudden departure. The show's main character, small-town cop Kevin Garvey, played by Justin Theroux, kept running afoul of Loki, local Guilty Remnant leader Patty Levin, played by Ann Dowd. Late in the first season, Patty commits suicide in front of Kevin, and Kevin spends much of the second season being haunted by what is either Patty's ghost or a psychotic break from reality that he's just letting go untreated. As with all things about the series, it's probably a bit one from column A and one from column B. Eventually, Kevin grows so desperate to get rid of Patty's voice that he lets a crazy old man named Virgil feed him poison as part of a weird exorcism ritual, which is where International Assassin picks up. This episode is weird, y'all. Kevin wakes up naked in a hotel bathtub with no explanation of how he got there, and a variety of costumes are in the closet. His old police uniform, a guilty remnant outfit, a priest's vestments, and an expensive suit. He puts on the suit and almost immediately has a fight to death with the bellboy, because of course he does. Then he goes off to explore the hotel as we get our first snippet of the episode's recurring musical motif, The Chorus of the Hebrew Slaves by Verdi, which you can hear in our first clip. Is this the afterlife? A parallel universe? Just one more hallucination by Kevin? It's not clear at this point, and maybe ever. I could go into a detailed breakdown of what happens in the episode, but the plot is intentionally ridiculous, which the show itself cops to early and often. At one point, Kevin runs into Virgil, who in the real world killed himself after poisoning our hero, and Virgil explains what Kevin's doing here, which we hear in our next clip. And where is here? You mean a hotel? No, it's not a fucking hotel. Someone just tried to kill me. Oh. Oh? Well, it makes sense. It's a pitfall of your chosen occupation. Which is what? Look at the way you're dressed, man. You're an international assassin. Are you fucking serious? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it's dumb, but it's meant to be dumb. Whether, whether metaphysical forces have made this place, or just Kevin's unconscious mind, it's turned his struggle to get rid of Patty, and really to unburden himself of all the guilt he still feels over the departure and the way his family drifted apart afterwards, into something external that he can easily understand. He's an international assassin. Patty is a presidential candidate and his target. Kill her, and the problem goes away, right? But as with all things leftovers, it's never that simple. Much of the episode goes back and forth between self-aware, paranoid thriller cliches and stranger, more whimsical ideas. 
There's a bird loose in the hotel lobby, and Virgil keeps warning Kevin not to drink the water. Occasionally, we get glimpses of a woman speaking Spanish, and if you translate the dialogue, it implies that she's here under similar circumstances as Kevin. There's an odd, old-fashioned lie detector test Kevin has to pass before he can meet Patty, and he sees his father on the hotel room TV tripping balls in an identical hotel room in Australia, which we'll find out in Season 3 really happened. The famously endowed Theroux opens the episode naked and wet, and later there's a joke where a security guard frisks him and says, Congratulations. Kevin murders Patty, but she may have only been a Patty impersonator, while the little girl in the hotel room next door turns out to be the actual Patty. After a journey across an apocalyptic version of the bridge that had been season two's most important location, where TV's Bill Camp pops up and whispers something in Kevin's ear, Kevin takes the little girl version of Patty to an old stone well where he believes he's supposed to drown her. We know that the Anne Dowd version of Patty is as eager to be free of Kevin as he is of her, but it's still unnerving to hear this kid, played by Darby Camp from Big Little Lies, encourage a reluctant Kevin to murder her, as we hear in our final clip. Would it help if I close my eyes? No. Would it help if I say I deserve it? That's not true. Yes, it is. I talk too much. I don't listen. I'm stupid. I'm worthless. I'm a fat pig. I don't know how to be happy. Please stop. Because this is an audio medium, you can't see Kevin almost casually push her into the well at the end of that, nor see the rueful expression on his face after he does it. But the job's not done yet. Patty is still alive and an adult again, so Kevin has to climb in after her and listen to her tell the story about the time she went on Jeopardy in hopes of using the prize money to escape her abusive husband. She won the cash, but she couldn't work up the nerve to leave him. And as Kevin listens to her, he finally understands for the first time that this woman he's turned into the villain of his own story is just as damaged and has suffered just as much loss as he has. And it's only then that he can work up the nerve to drown her, which sends him hurtling back into the real world to find himself lightly buried by Virgil's grandson, Michael, who responds to the sight of the resurrected Kevin with the only two words that can properly capture the episode. Holy shit. International Assassin wasn't the first TV drama episode to send a character to some odd version of the afterlife. St. Elsewhere once put Howie Mandel on a trip to heaven, hell, and purgatory in the same hour. And I'm sure Sarah can quote chapter and verse about the time Tony Soprano turned into Kevin Finnerty. But no show has ever been as well-suited to it as this one in terms of overall subject matter and willingness to embrace the weirdest possible idea. This is at once a profoundly stupid hour of television and a profoundly tragic one. It's ridiculous and exciting and sad and always emotionally resonant, even when we're talking about the size of Justin Theroux's manhood. It showed how you could take the series' usual discussions about grief and madness, treat the subjects themselves entirely seriously, and yet have buckets of fun at the same time. The genius of this episode gave The Leftovers license to get even stranger after it, including a return trip to this hotel so Kevin could sing karaoke, another international assassin adventure, and that time a bunch of the characters got stuck on a lion sex boat party and met God, who was played, of course, by TV's Bill Camp. 
But none of that marvelous lunacy would have been possible without International Assassin, the defining hour of one of my favorite shows ever. I hope you'll consider it for the canon. This is not a perfect hour of TV, um, but I this is a great presentation. Um, I think that you were wise to uh, keep the clips to a minimum because either you know what's happening with this episode or you don't, and it's it's a little hard to like clip. Uh, to clip from it, uh, I would say. Uh, there are some sequences in here that I found myself like, this is going on too long. Um, this is a little too t- uh, TV, a little too scripty. But what struck me at the end, um, when he's sort of crawling out of, when he's like Lazarusing out of this shallow grave in the woods, is that the is the lengths that this character will go to to avoid um feeling the horrible things that he needs to feel um and that he's just going to these lengths to avoid his own grief uh and guilt and these tortured um plans and rationalizing that humans do to avoid those things which has its parallel in anxiety nightmares which this could also be um that quality of like going from one problem to the next uh in your subconscious but never exactly solving any of them just like getting thrown off course that this episode can be a meditation which is an expression i'm sick of but here we all are um on all of those things but also as you said, Alan, be funny and be weird and have these like very dark slapstick moments like fucking Captain Fuller from 21 Jump Street, like whamping a bird to death with his <laughs> spiral notebook is like, what the crispy fuck am I even watching? So I like it's enjoyable, but it's it's the way that it's imperfect reminded me, in fact, of um, like the the quality of like a funeral day and the fact that there's a lot of like dead time in it. I I just thought that that was a, that was an interesting um, structural parallel if it was intentional, which with this show, I feel like everything is always intentional. Hmm. Wow. That's a good point. I thought about that. And also like when you go to a hotel itself, I feel like you lose time in a similar way. Yeah. Yeah. And, but in that way, it's like the casino way. Yes. Yes. Of losing time that you're just like disoriented. And once you sort of get into the rhythms of the hotel, you know, it's time to go home. It is sort of like going to Vegas. Um, y- yeah. I don't think this episode necessarily suffers from the absence of, uh, of Carrie Coon. I of course adore her, but this episode is extremely leftover Z. It did make me want to go back and start, the series from the beginning and revisit it because it's been a while naked justin through enough said um <laughs> i laughed i cried i'm glad it was not cats who were squashed with the spiral notebook um yeah this is a really amazing episode of television that i think is the um sort of best and most of what the show was able to do uh, and it made me sort of feel lucky that we had it uh, even for three seasons. 
So yeah, good presentation. And I was glad to revisit it. Um, I loved the book, The Leftovers. I'm like the one person who doesn't think season one is bad because I like the book so much. Um, and I love the show. Uh, I'm glad you called out the Norislessness of this episode because it is important to note. And am I mad about Justin Theroux's naked ass? No. Like we got multiple angles. <laughs> everyone's, everyone's pleased with that. No one, no one has a quarrel with that. Yeah, thank you, Mirrors. I've never seen that man naked, and that is a very attractive naked man. He has got <laughs> muscles in all the right places and just the right size. You can tell looking at that body, it's a body that needs to have a toilet that looks like a motorcycle, which yep. we all know from the other two, he does. You anyway. can bounce a quarter off that guy and catch it. Yeah, um, I loved getting reacquainted with the way Ann Dowd says Kevin, um, yeah. adding a Y in it. <laughs> Alan is right that you can't imagine in the audio format what it's like to see Kevin push like kid um, Patty into a well. But if you email me, I will send it to you because I made a gif at the time this episode <laughs> aired, um, which was an important thing to do, I feel. If you send it to me, I can put it in the show notes. Oh, OK. I'll, yeah, OK. Um, and Sarah's right that this is, you know, of a piece with what Kevin's been doing throughout the whole season, this, the series, which is just walking around begging anyone to tell him what to do to stop yeah. feeling what he's feeling. Like that's, you know, just the text of this episode instead of the subtext of every other episode. Um, but I hate this episode. <laughs> I really, I hate a dream episode. I hate that episode of The Sopranos too. I know this isn't exactly a dream episode, but it is kind of. And I feel like, I know this is a soft sci-fi show, but I never think of it that way until an episode like this comes along where I feel like it's broken its agreement with me as a viewer of like what it's doing, how. Like, the show never tries to explain what the departure is or like even really almost until the very, very end where the people who departed went. And whether you believe Nora's story from the series finale or not, I guess is a choice. Like when I found out that there were people that didn't, I was shocked because I did like I buy into the premise of the show, even with all of its uncertainties and like just the lacunae of what it's trying to do. And so I feel like something like this, where it's just, is just a big cheat. And I, I do think there are great moments in it that, you know, Patty in the well is great having her be a kid and the, you know, try to explicate her relationship with Neil that way, making her more vulnerable. Like I get it, but this is not in the upper echelon of episodes for me. So I appreciate the presentation because you elucidated a lot of stuff that I wouldn't have thought of in this way because I have such a, I feel, have felt this way about it since it aired. I was like the one. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, great presentation. <laughs> I don't think I'm there. Dave. I was very curious to watch this episode because I knew that Tara didn't like it and that Tara got a lot of, you know, Twitter flack for her opinion of it. So I was very well, I don't curious. Think that's true. No one cares. I don't think that's true. No one cares. I just knew that I was in the minority in this opinion. Okay. Well, I saw I saw a lot of you're entitled to your opinion, but of course you're wrong in just <laughs> tweets at the time when something went up. So, Fair. so, you know, I was interested to see. I was prepared to like it because it sounded fun and goofy. And, you know, I was talking earlier about alien versus aliens and how they just flipped a, you know, moved a genre over. I thought this episode was going to be like that, like to have people explain it to me. Um, they were saying, well, it's like James Bond 
in, in leftovers. I'm like, well, that sounds weird and fun and, and, and silly, but, um, it wasn't that fun and silly. Like, uh, mm-hmm. it was different. Like the tone obviously was different, but it wasn't like this romp. Like I was expecting, I enjoyed this episode for what it was. I, I do agree that I find that dream episodes, you know, dream episodes for the English minor and all of us. Let's spot all the symbolism and blah, blah, blah. I really. Yeah. Or drug trip episodes. I, I don't like that part of it. And when people respond to that, um, I feel like I'm out in the cold because I feel like that sort of. And Star Trek is like the one that I always bring up in that because I like, they, you know, like there's a there's a light in the corner, like the applause light, except it says symbolism, you know, and it's blinking off and on. So <laughs> dream episodes aren't my favorite. But this episode I found had enough. Boy, I don't even know how to put it, but like it shifted gears so often without stalling that I was sort of like compelled to see the ride through. It starts off with the fight pretty much, you know, with the bellboy. And I was like, okay, this is the James Bondy born uh, identity kind of thing that people were saying. But then it kind of shifts into this sort of almost like Inception-esque Godfather scene with the uh, political visit with the gun in the toilet, all the weird stuff with the bird. And then, of course, you get into the who's patty and element of it. And, you know, can he go through with it after learning everything that he's learning that she is damaged as well. She's not like a a capital V villain. She's got her motivations and she's got her uh, issues too. I like the other episode that for the leftovers way more than this one, but I get why people like this who like the show a lot. Like I think when you are inside of a show that you really enjoy an episode like this can be important for you. If this was the X-Files, this episode would be uh, Jose Chung from Outer Space. Is that the one I'm thinking of? Yeah. Um, yeah, it is. I feel like that is a similar sort of departure. And a I sudden enjoy- departure, you might say. Womp <laughs> womp. <laughs> 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 I have to say, Justin Thoreau does such a good job with all the twists and turns that his character takes in this episode. And there's a lot of them. There's action, there's rage, there's there's confusion. They're like, you know, it's an acting class all in one. And he handles it without seeming too actory, even though there's this heightened reality, there's this dream symbolism scape, you know. Um, I thought he did a really good job, so I just wanted to say... Uh, His delivery of, oh, alone. <laughs> so funny. Yeah, so um, I'm not mad at it like Tara. I don't think it's a masterpiece, but I would <laughs> I would say that um, it's, it's canon-worthy because I think it is one of those outside-the-norm episodes that it delivers on, on a show's mission without just being like the stupid throwaway thing. And I, I was entertained as well. So uh, I'm going to say yes, Sarah D. Bunting. That's a yes for me, dog. Uh, and Tara Ariano, what say you? Well, first I'll just say, I'm not mad at it like Tara is, is true of so, so many things <laughs> in the world. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a respectful no for me. All right. But that doesn't matter because it's two versus one. So. That means The Leftovers, Season 2, Episode 8, International Assassin. You are hereby inducted into the extra hot great cannon. Americans love a winner. Yeah. 
and will not tolerate a loser. No! It's time for Winner and Loser of the Week. Tara, who is our winner? Well, I kind of thought that the fact that we hadn't heard anything about it for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks since its season one finale meant it was not coming back. But that's not true. Holy moly has finally (laughs) been picked up for a second season. The extremely dumb extreme golf show that we watched all of uh, is coming back. And I just want to note here, if there's hope for Holy Moly, maybe there's hope for BH90210 as well, which also has not been picked up or canceled yet. Do you want there to be? Kind of. I, by the end, I felt like they knew that they were doing. I would, yeah, I would keep watching it if I, it came I can see them fixing some shit like the personal life stuff for yeah. a season uh, two. So, all right. I think that BH90210 costs more than $12 an episode to produce, though. Holy I'm moly. Sh- I'm sure It's got to be the, one of the cheapest network shows I, on maybe television. Maybe if they put Steph Curry on it, it would do a little better. I'm just saying. <laughs> Who is our loser, Sarah? Um, that would be a San Francisco area Fox affiliate, which on the occasion of the Atlanta Braves losing 13 to 1 to the St. Louis Cardinals, wrote in a Chiron, Braves scalped. Ouch. Yikes. That's um, bullshit. Yeah, they had to deliver an on-air apology, um, calling the phrase racially insensitive toward Native Americans. Um, This pales in comparison to how racially insensitive toward Native Americans the Atlanta fucking Braves are, and the Redskins, and the Cleveland Indians, but at least someone, like, actually did the shitty thing and drew attention back to this issue. Please just rename your teams. Did I read that um, there was a Native American player on a team that was going to be playing them? And they said, OK, we won't do the Tomahawk Chop during the games when he's here. Like, if you realize wow. you have to do this, like, maybe don't do it at all ever and anymore. And also they're again. like, we will no longer give out Tomahawks to Ugh. chop. I guess you have to fucking make your own at home from paper mache. Like, just gross. Just stop. Okay, um, speaking <laughs> about stopping things suddenly. You know what else suddenly, just needs to stop? <laughs> uh, do you know what time it is? It's, it's game, game time. time. <laughs> 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 Segways. Yeah. <laughs> Usually Look, set you up know what's coming. That. You can at least try to set me up a little I bit. I always Sorry. set you up. Awesome. <laughs> Fuck you, Dave. <laughs> Tara and Sarah are starting with negative three points. <laughs> Dick. All right. This is the 12th game time of the season. Season scores are Tara 4, Sarah 4, value guest 3. So Done. we could have a winner oh today. If Alan wins, it'll be a 4-4-4 tie next week. Let's see how it plays out. Oh, my God. Today we are playing The Verb is the Word from Chris Billig with assistance from one Mr. Dan Casino. They earned themselves Ooh. an extra credit topic for their trouble. They write. We've changed the titles of TV shows by adding I-N-G to the end of one of the words to make it a verb. Name the new show based on its given synopsis. So here's an example. And I'm going to use this one because it's way too meta to use for real in the actual game. (laughs) Here's your synopsis. A big city couple moved to small town Nebraska to start a church worshiping Tara's Twitter nemesis. Uh, bless this messing. Bless this messing <laughs> would be the answer. Shouldn't I get some Dave points for already having a last name that does this? <laughs> <laughs> you could if you didn't ask for it, but you did, so you don't. 
Fuck you, Tari Ariano, can I please have the steel meal situation? Well, strap in for drama, because here's some. The value guests have one, and Sarah has one, and here's why. Here comes a mea culpa. Um, in our extra, extra hot, great episode number 24, uh, this is the for our Patreons. This was listener game time number two. Uh, there was a tie, and when that was settled, they did it for shits and giggles, and the players had a chance to gift their steel meal to someone, Aww. and they gifted it to Sarah, and at the time, I said, I'll remember, and then we recorded three of those in one day, and I forgot. So this <laughs> that episode dropped October 4th, so last week, Sarah should have had two steel meals. She did not. Now, oh. I am throwing myself at the mercy of Sarah, the wronged party, and our game master. I have five steel meals, so you can take as many of those as you see fit to as a penalty for me fucking up and forgetting to assign Sarah all of her rights. So let me get this straight. There's seven. There's technically, legally, seven steel meals out there right now? Yeah. Value Guest has one. Value Guest is not part of the skirmish. Sarah has one. Legitimately, that yeah. I forgot to give her last week. I have five. Sarah three, Tara two, value guest two. Final ruling. Here we go. Great. All right. Sorry, Sarah. So, <laughs> to recap from 12 minutes ago, you're adding ing to a show based on the synopsis I will read. Let's sort of picky to see who will start with question one. We will start with valued guest. All right. That means Alan is up first. We'll go to Sarah next and then Tara. Are we ready to play The Verb is the Word? Yes. Here we go, Alan Seppenwall. There is a fifth dimension beyond that which is known to man. It is a dimension where cities are divided into commercial and residential districts. Adding I-N-G to one of the words in an existing TV show to make a new show based on that synopsis I just read. Got it. I was I was going to put the ing on the wrong word. The twilight zoning. The twilight zoning is correct. One point. These are all just one point, right? Alan. Yep. Okay. Sarah D. Bunting. ABC, CBS, and NBC celebs compete to see who can make the most connections at an industry event. <laughs> oh, ba- battle of the networking stars. <laughs> correct. Yeah. Tara Ariano. Yes. Four Colorado kids get after-school jobs as valets. South parking. South parking. Everybody got their first point. Circling back to Alan. These are the Tates. These are the Campbells. And they all like spreading bars of ivory on neighbors' windows. Soaping. (laughs) Sarah D. Bunting. This grim TNBC Saturday morning show handed out extreme capital punishment to nefarious basketball players. <laughs> um, can I t- hear the first part again? Yeah, this grim T as in Thomas NBC Saturday morning show handed out extreme capital punishment to nefarious basketball players. And I had to look up TNBC. I'll let you know. It's sort of like TGIF. It's not an actual. It's like a marketing thing. Like Saved by the Bell was one of those. Yeah. Oh, gotcha. Uh, I don't have the faintest idea. Steel Mill? Steel Mill from Alan. Hanging Time. Hanging Time from Hang Time is correct. Tara Ariano? Yes. The Chapman family captures wanted criminals and has sex with them in public. 
<laughs> oh no. Dogging the bounty hunter? Oh, gross. <laughs> um, <laughs> for Alan, moving on. Yes. A quartet of nerds posit hypotheses as to the best way to have sex. Let me read that oh. again. A quartet of nerds posit hypotheses as to the best way to have sex. The big banging theory. Correct. Yep. Oh my god. I'm scared. Sarity Bunting. Another format change at this Midwest radio station has the DJs playing records of people urinating. Oh my god. <laughs> WKRP in Cincinnati. <laughs> I love this game. Oh my god. Back to Tara. Mm-hmm. The star of Beethoven and Cheaper by the Dozen interviews guests while shooting Wild Game. Ooh. Um. The star uh, of Beethoven and Cheaper by the Dozen interview yep. guests while shooting Wild Game. Have an answer for that one. No, I don't. That was the Bonnie Hunting Show. Oh. oh. <laughs> to Alan. This sitcom is about the soldiers on potato duty in the 4077's mess tent. Mashing. Mashing. Sarity <laughs> Bunting. Sexy lycanthropes try to keep their six packs while binging on food. Binging on food. Uh, oh my god. The name of that show has completely departed from my head. Sexy. Yeah, I got nothing. Someone steal it. Steal mail. Steal mail from Alan. Teen Wolfing. Teen Wolfing. Wolfing <laughs> that food, correct? Oh, I was thinking Wolfing Creek, which was uh, also... Oh, yeah. That's the one I was thinking of. I don't all right, know why. Tara. Judge Joe and Bailiff Rusty can't get through any cases because they're too busy flirting. Um, The People's Courting. Correct. To Alan, a superhero uses his unique power to show his genitals to every person on Earth at least once a day. <laughs> <laughs> Wait. Oh, flashing. The flashing, correct. Sarah D. Bunting. Sportswomen cover themselves with phosphorescent materials before their match. Glowing. Correct. <laughs> Taking us into our first score break, Tara. A hallucinating lawyer handles cases where the punishment is pelting the defendants with rocks. Eli Stoning. Eli Stoning is correct. <laughs> A lot of correct answers so far. Let's hear the scores. Okay. Sarah has three. I have four. Alan has been <laughs> wisely using his steel meals, which he is now out of, uh, and it has seven. All right. Well played. That's why steel meals are so important. Let's get back to it. I said I was sorry. Alan Sepinwall. Hey, you paid the price. Alan Sepinwall, here you go. Yes. There's no time for super-powered detective work with the titular character's constant desire to drink whiskey. Super-powered detective work. Drinking whiskey. Oh, my God. I should know this. Uh, John Constantining. Uh. 
the answer we were looking for, Jessica Jonesing. Jessica Jonesing. Oh, oh yeah. Cool. I was like, oh, is that too easy? Okay. Also, also would be just a description of the show itself. Didn't even have to yep. be. <laughs> Sarah D. Bunting, this is question 17. Spread Eagle. This show is only about everyone's least favorite Pearson, Kevin, and his addictions. <laughs> this show is about everyone's least favorite Pearson, Kevin, and his addictions. Least favorite Pearson, Kevin, and his addictions. Any oh, idea what that is? Okay, geez. I was like, using? Uh, this is using. This is using. <laughs> Correct. Oh. Nice. Tatara. Yes. An everyday IT guy gets secret files downloaded into his brain, but his only new skill is being able to throw or barf things really far. Checking. <laughs> All right. Uh, All right. Uh, we are at question. And we're back to Alan. A mean judge grades a contestant's ability to list numbers that can be multiplied together to get another number. A mean um, judge grades a contestant's ability to list numbers that can be multiplied together to get another number. Famously mean judge. Math netting? The answer Steel we're looking meal. for. Steel meal. Steel meal from Tara. The X factoring. The X factoring. Correct. Oh. Math strikes again. Damn you, math. Numberless math, and it's still hard. Sarah D. Bunting. In yet another reboot, the FYI gang starts a cooking show and learns how to sear meat. <laughs> Murphy Browning? Murphy Browning. <laughs> That's it. Tara. In this game show, contestants have to tell whether the age of a hammerhead trying to get into a club is higher or lower than 21. Card sharking? No. Steel meal. Oh. Yep. Sarah with the steel meal. Carding sharks? Carding sharks. Ah! There it is. <laughs> Had the show, didn't match the synopsis. Well done. Alan. Yes. In this long-running drama, police investigations are delayed by trips to get complicated drinks at Starbucks. Law and ordering. <laughs> Law and ordering is correct. These are their stories. Sarah D. Bunting, I don't know why, but I feel like you always get the this show. Let's see if you can get the answer. Oh, no. Identical cousins fight it out in this 60s sitcom. <laughs> Identical cousins fight it out? Yeah. Yeah. In this 1960s sitcom. Uh... I don't Any know. No. All right. Uh, the answer, anybody? For Chits and Giggles, shout it out. Patty Duking. Yeah, oh, yeah. Show. I do get that one. Uh, right. On the other International Assassin episode, Ann Dowd sang the theme to the Patty Duke show. <laughs> oh, That's right. Time is a flat. But they're something. Kevins. Identical Kevins. <laughs> <laughs> Tara Ariano, a chess yes. writer, helps solve crime with the help of his signature King Rook move. Castling. Castling, correct. <laughs> For Alan, after yep. a long day in court, a lawyer relaxes by stone cutting. 
After a long day in court, a lawyer relaxes by stone cutting. I don't know. I'm going to say sledgehammering. The answer we were looking for? Perry Masoning. Oh. Oh. Sarah Bunting, a daydreaming intern, tries to stay one step ahead of his resident while keeping the hospital spotless. Scrubbing? Scrubbing, correct. (laughs) Tara. Yep. A friendly after-school Disney show turns violent as Annette severely beats an iconic character. (laughs) The Mickey Mouse clubbing. (laughs) Back to Alan. David Boreanis leads a squad in repairing leaky underwater pipes. Um... Is it... Ceiling? Navy ceiling? The answer we're looking for ceiling team. Ceiling team. Ceiling team. Ah. Close, close, but no cigar. Sarah D. Bunting, here is your next show. Tim the Birdman Taylor hosts a show of getting the most out of your carrier pigeon. (laughs) Homing improvement. Homing improvement is correct. (laughs) Tara, bring us into our second score break and our two-thirds mark in this quiz. Okay. An autistic hospital resident is also really skilled at falsifying medical records. Oh, the good doctoring. The good doctoring. That's how you do it. (laughs) And we are at our next score break. Tara, can we please get the scores? It's so close. Alan and Sarah are tied with eight points each. I have nine. Ooh. All right. Everybody has five questions left. So anybody's game. Alan, here we go. Mm-hmm. Abe Vagoda didn't get much done on this spinoff. He was too busy out with his rod and reel. Fishing. Fishing, correct. Uh-huh. Severity Bunting. Our tough-skinned hero fights crime in Harlem and he keeps chickens in pens on his roof. <laughs> Luke Caging. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to say I wrote the next one. I'm proud of it. It's so stupid. Uh-oh. Oh, boy. Behind the front lines of the <laughs> Vietnam War... Dana Delaney cares for expensive dishware that's washed up on shore. China beaching. <laughs> oh, God, Dave. <laughs> that's not the last of mine either. <laughs> All right. Back to, back to Alan. Greg Kinnear was the first host of this e-clip show about stews, gazpachos, and cup of noodles. Talking soup. Talking soup. <laughs> Severity Bunting? <laughs> this, this is also mine. This is also my favorite. (laughs) We can tell by the way you're giggling already. Improv comedians try to suss out who owns the inner surface of various jackets. (laughs) Whose lining is it anyway? (laughs) Well done. Well done. Tari Ariana. This syndicated show told the tough tabloid truth about office Xerox machines. Hard copying. Hard copying. Correct. Back to Alan. An OBGYN subconsciously assigns her feelings to her co-workers. An OBGYN subconsciously assigns her feelings to her co-workers. Bensoning. Steel meal. Steel meal from Sarah. The Mindy projecting. The Mindy projecting. Gorgeous. Sarah has one steel meal left. Okay. 
Here is one that Chris said, I could have went blue, but I didn't. And he has regrets. But here we go. Okay. For Sarah. A Marvel hero uses the power of his glowing hand to press his trousers. Oh, I, I see that you didn't do iron fisting. You did ironing fist. You are correct. <laughs> All right, Tara. Yep. Um, this is also for me and is also my favorite. LGBT okay. icon and lister navigates the end of the British Georgian era's prejudice and male masturbation. Gentleman jacking. Correct. Uh, this is for me and it's also my favorite. Apple TV's upcoming Paul Thoreau novel adaptation starring his nephew as a blood-sucking pest who's just lazily going through life. Ugh. Apple TV is such a mess, and this is one of the ones I haven't seen, so I can't remember the name. This I... is upcoming, just announced. They haven't even started production. You got to be really in the industry to know what we're talking about. Alan Sadly, I'm not. Uh, Dickinsoning. Mm. All right, the answer we were looking for: the mosquito coasting. Just going uh, through. Oh, sure. <sighs> Sarity Bunting, guess what? Also, my favorite. Trapeze artists, lion tamers, bearded ladies, and fairies team together to win a regatta. Trapeze artists, lion tamers, bearded ladies, and fairies team up to win a regatta. Team up to win a regatta. Uh, Love boating. I don't know. Anybody know the answer to that one? Carnival rowing. Carnival rowing. Oh. oh. All right, Tara, this might be the hardest one for people of on the panel today. Okay. Goku's rapid fire jokes at your expense hit at power level 3000. Great. Goku's rapid fire <laughs> jokes at your expense hit at power level 3000. Drag oh Dragon Ball Zing. Dragon Ball Zing. Correct. Oh, nice pull. Everybody has one left, so let's quickly get the scores, Tara. Okay. Alan has ten. Sarah has twelve. I have thirteen. Thirteen, oh, all right. Boy. Here we go. Alright, this is Alan's last question. A Brooklyn teacher reluctantly accepts VC funding for his educational project. Welcome back in Cotter. Welcome back in Cotter <laughs> is wow. the correct answer. Sarah D. Bunting need this to tie, correct? Yeah. That's correct. Here we go. Corey Stoll and his CDC team try to save the world from a new virus, turning people into constipated zombie vampires. <laughs> I'll read that again for you. Corey Stoll and his Center for Disease Control team try to save the world from a new virus that's turning people into constipated zombie vampires. Constipated zombie vampires. Why? Oh, my God. Why can't I think of this? Show. We're going to need an answer. I I know. It it was like the, the, the... Oh, uh, the the straining? Yes! Yes! 
<laughs> that might be my favorite. Wow. All right. I mean, Tara. speaking of straining, Jesus, I'm exhausted. You give her the ding. She didn't. She, she heard did the, ding. the ding. I gave her the ding. I, I heard the ding. All right. I didn't All right, hear it. Tara. I was too busy saying, yeah. Oh, this boy. is it for the win. Miss yep. it. We'll go to a tiebreaker. Well, okay. Sarah's got a steel meal, so we never know. Sarah does oh, have a steel meal. An historical fiction series centering on clumsy crusaders who keep losing their balance. Night falling. Night falling is the correct answer, uh, and that means you take the game. But we do have a tiebreaker, which we'll repurpose for shits and giggles. First person to shout out the correct answer will win a steel meal for future use. Everybody ready? Yep. Yes. Diana spends time in her invisible plane contemplating the mysteries of life. Wondering woman. Wondering woman. Yeah, sure. <laughs> All right, uh, Alan wins a steel mill for a future value guess, but Tara wins the day. Tara. Tara. And with that, her fifth victory, which means Tara is the champion of well this season. Done. <laughs> Tara. I have a lovely singing voice, is what I'm discovering. Well, that was a great game. Thank you, Chris and Dan. Thank it you really was. That was playing. super fun. And I can't be mad after I hear that song, so. <laughs> Guys, that is it for this episode of Extra Hot Great. We kicked the tires on El Camino, a Breaking Bad movie, before going around the dial with stops at Dynasty... Riverdale, Stay out of Riverdale, Lodge 49, Private Lives of the Windsor, and breathy covers of popular songs. <laughs> Alan's pitch for the leftovers was not double tapped in the head. We crowned winners and losers of the week, and Tara was a winner of this week's game time and this season. Remember, we're listening. <laughs> I am David T. Cole, and on behalf of Tara Ariano, Kevin. Sarah D. Bunting. Wow, it's like I'm here with Sinatra. And Alan Sepinwall. <laughs> you still have to owe me for the last one. Thanks for listening. <laughs> and we'll see you next time right here on Extra Hot Great. Yeah, no crazy in this house. Perfectly normal.